Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Good morning and uh, thank you very much for being here. All engines are started. That looks really good. So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh, wow, it's going up so slowly. The state of the space flyer during the flight is being observed with the help of radio, telemetric, and television devices. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. Welcome to Space Boffins in partnership with The Naked Scientists. I'm Richard Hollingham, and for World Space Week, we've come to the European Space Research and Technology Centre, ESTEC, in the Netherlands for their annual Open Day. And it's rather brilliant. The sun has come out. I'm Sue Nelson, and uh, we're at the moment outside the main building, where inside you've got all manner of efforts to publicise European space. You've got the space scientists themselves. I've already spotted several that are involved in quite a few missions, directly explaining what they do to several thousand visitors. In fact, I think in total they're going to be about 7,000 today. Yeah, possibly more than that. Only 5,000 let in at any one time, most of whom seem to be walking past us right now (laughs) outside the centre. Uh, So coming up, we have two astronauts, including NASA's Michael Fole and his efforts to save the International Space Station. We'll also be talking to a stormtrooper masquerading as a senior European space scientist. First, we'll hear from the head of ESTEC and also director of technology for ESA, Franco Ongaro. What we do, we do it for the citizens of Europe. And I think it's their right to be able to see what we do and come in and touch it and see it and understand it. I love science fiction, but it's good to give the public the idea of what is true and what is science fiction. Is that why you had some stormtroopers? Yeah, that, that, exactly. I'm always perplexed, but I know the kids love it, so it's fine. On the other hand, I think they see then the difference between that and what we do for exclusively peaceful purposes. Let's not forget. We are 2,700 working here. And our families, uh, we can never talk to them about what we do because they're bored stiff after listening to us for years. So for my colleagues to be able to have one day when they speak to people who are really interested in what they say and see the kids really excited, we get back the magic of what working in space is for all of us. Why 
as kids, we wanted absolutely to work for ESA. You're right about the, the, <coughs> the boredom thing. Yeah. A couple of days ago, I went to interview an astronaut, an yeah. Apollo astronaut, and I said to our 17-year-old son, I'm off to interview an astronaut. He just went, what, another one? <laughs> you know, it, it's exactly right. Um, give us an idea then what uh, spacecraft are going through here at the moment. What, what, are you, what are you working on right now? On Friday next week, we launch Sentinel-5P, which went through here. We are working on the repeated series of the Sentinels, which are already on orbit, so the B, C, and D versions. So these are Earth observation satellites. Earth observation satellites, and we call them Sentinels because they are really meant to look at the health of the planet. We just sent out the last four of the first batch of the Galileo satellites, which will be launched from uh, Guyana, they were tested here, and we're working on the next generation, the next batches. So they're your navigation satellites? They are our navigation satellites. I'm sorry, you're right to remind me. Thanks a million. Uh, we have uh, three or four very exciting telecommunication ideas coming up and satellites to go with them. Quantum technologies in space, light communications, and uh, very advanced, flexible telecom satellites, which we do to foster the competitiveness of industry. And then, of course, we have our science program. So we're just finishing packing up uh, Baby Colombo. We'd go to Mercury and we'll leave our testing center around March, I think. And we're working on Plato, who will deep look for uh, planets which are habitable around the star. Euclid, which will try and probe what dark matter it really is because we don't know about 87% of the universe, which is a little disappointing <laughs> if you live in it. Uh, and uh, we are working, of course, on Juice, which would do the grand tour. Oh, of Jupiter's the... icy moon. Yeah, Looking exactly. Forward to that one. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, are you bothered about the name of Juice? That always bothers me. Juice is a, it's a bit of a rubbish name, isn't it? Well, I don't know. I think I've, I've personally always gone for female names in my program so aurora iris i'm always a little bit uh, skeptical about acronyms but hey it's a beautiful mission <laughs> so i'll go with it thank you very much indeed thank you well i'm delighted to be with claudie enure who is the first french woman in space and mm. also the first european woman on the space station i mean that's a tremendous achievement what are your sort of greatest memories of of your trips into space Oh, it's difficult in a few <laughs> minutes to, to tell something like that. Uh, it was really a great uh, adventure. I would say not a, just a scientific adventure, technological adventure, but truly a human adventure. For me, my first memory of that was, was uh, July 69. I was 12 years old, and the landing of the first human on the moon's surface. It was something really big. And when I had my first look through the window in the space station, I saw for the first time an aurora. So, and this vision of the planet, so beautiful and so isolated also in, in this cosmos, but with the magic of the aurora was something completely non-ordinary, extraterrestrial yeah. feeling. And then the feeling of microgravity floating. I am a medical doctor, so for me, a rheumatologist. It means that for me it's very important to try to understand, to feel the sensation of the body. So it was just a dream to be there in microgravity, to do experiments and to feel and to express that for you too. 
I mean, that's a huge advantage of having um, mission specialists, people with scientific backgrounds and not as well as the sort of, you know, test pilot, Mm -hmm. uh, military Mm -hmm. um, side of things. Do you um, feel that the future uh, with, with space travel is going to be continuing that route or with space tourism it's going to open it up to more ordinary human beings mm-hmm. <laughs> like myself <laughs> i think there is for the time being a real transformation a real change in uh, in space and it's opening to uh, private interest uh, private adventures and maybe in this i would say uh, in uh, 10 or 20 years from now we'll have more access for everyone in in space, uh, we have to think where we will go beyond low Earth orbit. For 50 years now, we are in low Earth orbit. So there was this trips to the moon, but it was already a long time ago. And now we think where we go with human crews. Uh, so Mars, for sure, Mars is a destination, is an objective, because there is there the search for life and really some very important question. But I think in between, there is this step to be around the moon and back to the surface of the moon. For me, that means that we will not only explore to visit, but we will in a bit on the lunar surface. Because you're back working at the European Space Agency Yes, now. I'm back in the European Space Agency and promoting this idea uh, pushed by the Director General of... Uh, his Moon Village. His, yes. With the Moon Village. And I think really that's an interesting concept. I, I agree. I, yeah. I, I love it's it. It's really inspiring. That's uh, innovative because we have to think out of the box in order to do that. That's a global concept, a humanist one, I would say, with a lot of uh, scientific, technological um, developments that will help our Earth and will help us to go further in the exploration. Now, when we last met, it was very, very briefly, it was in the the reception of the European Space Agency headquarters in Mm -hmm. Paris, and Mm -hmm. I was with Wally Funk, who's a Mercury 13 member, and obviously Jan Werner was a big fan. Of, mm. of, of Wally and there you both were two yep. trailblazers mm. in your own right mm. uh, in, both women uh, involved in, in space mm. in some way do you think since you went into space as a first woman European woman on the space station do you think things have changed for women today or are there still some issues in terms of how women astronauts are treated compared to men Yeah, I, I think it's not a problem of how women astronauts are treated uh, we have still a problem of uh, candidacy, confidence to be the um, part of, of the crew. When I have been selected, it was 35 years ago, there were 10% of female candidates in the world election. And in the last election of the European Space Agency, that means 10 years ago, 10%. No progression wow. in, in the applica- application to this, uh, to this job. So this is really an issue, that, I mean, not just for space, that's the same for digital world, for engineering, for uh, hard uh, sciences. So we have still to, to be motivated, determined, in order to go to this kind of uh, equilibrium, I would say diversity, not purely parity, but diversity, because for the future we need to think and to act as a diverse uh, society. For the future, so I'm really proud to to be a part of this uh, 
female adventure in, in space. And I would say that we have great example of um, female astronauts that have been commander of the shuttle, commander of the space station. Peggy Whitson mm. was there a few uh, uh, weeks ago, have, and she's yes. really great. So yeah. we have wonderful uh, examples. Good role models, yeah. Good role mo- models. And I think we have to transmit, to explain, to share, to be there, and to be closest as possible to the question, the curiosity, to the to, to share the, the feeling. Because uh, as it has been said already, uh, even if with the um, probes, the automatic probes, we can do a lot and discover and explore the solar system, you will not have a satellite saying, wow, it's full of stars. <laughs> <laughs> any any dreams to go back, or uh, are you firmly on the ground from now on? I, I, I'm on the ground. I prepare for the next generation, and I hope I can contribute to the building of a village on the moon. So do I. Thank you very much. Indeed. Thank you. <laughs> if you ever wanted a reason to come to one of these open days, well, this is it. This is the the test area at Estech. And we're always told that, you know, NASA does all this stuff bigger and better. This is big and this is, I mean, it's huge. You were going to say better then, but you just don't know. But it is fantastic. It's, we're in front of the Hertz radio frequency test chamber. And it's an extraordinary room filled with acoustic, looks like acoustic foam, but they're almost pyramids, like tall little pyramids on the uh, walls, on the floors, and they're all blue. So it's it's almost like a sculpture. It's the weirdest room, a really odd room, but it's at least, I would say, two stories high, almost the size of a tennis court, something like that. It is amazing, and it, fairly appropriately, considering we're in the Netherlands, the structure on top of almost the wedding tier of these foam-tall pyramids is what looks like a windmill. I have no idea what it is, but that's what it looks like. And I rather like the one behind it as well, which is the leaf, the acoustic facility. That's uh, pretty cool as well. So this is where they, they test the satellites, they bake the satellites of the vacuum chamber, there's an oven here, and this is where all the spacecraft come before they're packed up and head off to launch. Well, um, I never expected to be talking to a stormtrooper, at least uh, not at the European Space Agency anyway, especially when that stormtrooper is, in fact, Matt Taylor, well known to everybody as the project scientist for the Rosetta mission. Matt, you've taken off your helmet, thankfully. Yes. It's nice to see the glasses and the beard above a yeah, white, quite squeaky yeah, stormtrooper outfit. Why are you wearing this? I ask myself that when it gets too warm, because <laughs> uh, now the sun's come out, it's actually quite, uh, it's quite horrible. It is very warm. This. It's the Aztec Open Day. We invite everyone to come in and see what we're doing. Last year and the year before, I gave a Rosetta talk to the uh, to the public. I didn't think I was going to do that, but I thought it was a good idea because there'd been a bit of PR activity because I wore this outfit at work, you know, like you do. And um, they suddenly started saying, oh, we'll, we'll advertise that as kind of part of the Open Day. And I thought, well, I'll get part of the costume club the dutch garrison the part of the 501st garrison these are this uh, is a charity uh, organization that dress up in the authentic gear you know and it takes a lot of effort and money to do this 
And I'm a member of that club now. Actually, there's a story there with respect to Rosetta, but I won't go into it. But bottom line is, we got the Dutch garrison to come in, and I was coming as one of them. I was coming as a Dutch garrison, but then I also gave this talk. And frankly, putting this on and taking it off is not that easy. So uh, We don't want to be on. there for that. Can I guess, this outfit, you, we've talked about this, uh, I've talked about this with you before. It's got some authenticity to it. This yeah. is not just any old Stormtrooper outfit. Yeah, there's, uh, there's one particular company in the UK up near Manchester, RS Props. They they have a lineage to the original armour. So this has got bumps and wiggles that are originally on one of the, the New Hope armour set. So that's why, you know, it's kind of the authentic one. And why it's actually really uncomfortable, because it was designed to be worn for 20 minutes shooting or something like that, not walking around. So, yeah, I know why why we lost against the rebels now <laughs> well, just just so you're aware i have already put on social media that isa is building a death star because well, of all be, yeah, this well, gonna, yeah well this is it and then i showed in my talk uh, an imperial cruiser parked off the beach <laughs> floating above the north sea just for scale <laughs> now it's interesting you mentioned about you know rosetta sort of coming back into the fall because i was quite surprised because i'd done a a piece a few months ago about the new last picture of Rosetta and then I think hold on there's a bloody another no, one that is the last <laughs> image it's just it's taken a bit of persuasion to actually get it out properly you know oh. how it is uh, that's their that's the that's the uh, camera team data yeah. so they're a bit reticent to let this out so in the end we said look if you're going to put it out put it out on the anniversary of the of the end of the mission so yeah it's the same one that you saw and you spoke oh. to Holger about yeah. on his wall it's the same one it's just that we now have officially released it uh, via our comms oh, channels. It's, more, it's just as well I, mean, I didn't blab then. No, <laughs> yeah, well, well, the thing is, that's the thing, and it does say in the ESA release, it says, as seen here, and it points at the piece that you did. Oh, yeah, oh so that's, just, that's oh, all right. That's it, because I had to make this ex- explanation to a couple of people, uh, even that somebody asked the question, so what was your surprise? Oh, well, I wasn't really that surprised. So it wasn't sort of down the back of the sofa or no, something? It wasn't exactly. a bit this of odd the, data? It, it came across like that, but then when you read through, and it refers to Sue's piece, and you think, okay, yeah, it's been sent, at least since May and it was shortly after the same year. Like, and you see some of the in some of the videos at the end of mission, they're kind of scratching their heads and looking a bit. Hang on a minute, have we got anything more? What can you get then from from these last images? Are you getting any actual science from them? All of it's science. I mean, this is this is this is somehow the issue with respect to outreach and PR and give us your your pictures. But that's that instrument team science as well. So they, you know, they look at the, the high-resolution images. As I show some of the stuff from Rolis when we descended with Philae, you're, you're counting boulders. You're looking at how those boulders are formed, and that's, that's, that's heavy science that we're doing with the camera team. So are you still heavily involved in Rosetta at the moment, or are you moving on to your next mission? I'm only involved in Rosetta still. Uh, we're, we're waiting, because uh, I work for the, the science director at the European Space Agency, we wait for the next mission to be proposed. Now... There are a number of missions being studied, and if one gets down-selected in the area that I appear to have some expertise, whatever that is, <laughs> apart from wearing plastic and squeaking, then I might get assigned that. But at the moment, it's just I'm just on Rosetta. And the intensity's dropped off, but there's still, seeing, there's still stuff going on. We're archiving the data. Next week, I go to Spain, to Madrid. We're, we're doing an archive review to make sure the data's in good shape for the archive. And do, still doing Rosetta talks, which I'm surprised about, actually. I, on, as People I said in my it. talk, I, I, I didn't think I was going to do this today. And I kind of just, yeah, as I said earlier, I was just going to come like this and say, I'll do Rosetta, go on. And it's a nice opener, maybe, for the day. Yeah. Is there some advantage in having missions that are almost like our avatars out there, that go somewhere, that visit something, as opposed to missions, you know, telescope missions? Do they think that they capture people's imagination more? Um, I, 
You know, I, I don't know. I mean, look, Hubble captures people, and that's not that far away from us, but there is, you basically, to do certain science, you have to go to certain places. So, yeah, you can't do some of the science. Look, look at, when I show these presentations, you look at what Rosetta showed, we couldn't have got that. From, we didn't get that from being on the ground, so you have to go to places. Now, Rosetta, I still think, is very special in any mission in that it has this massive story arc, and I describe this to people um, in, in, my, in my talk about how... Yeah, because I, I highlighted the, the efforts in communication with this mission in terms of outreach. It You're had saying that dressed as a storm Stormtrooper, yeah, I don't, yeah. Anyway, just don't tell LucasArts so, uh, or LucasFilms. We had fantastic ingredients with Rosetta. The mission, you know, some, some people argue it could have sold itself because it was so good. No, it, ha- it provided very good ingredients to make something more. So, you know, it's fine cuisine is what the output that yourselves, of course, are involved in um, that made it more than the sum of its, its parts. But go, for me, Rosetta is very unique, though. That's the thing. There's nothing like it. I mean, we have some fantastic missions that are going to be that are discussed here today you can go and talk to. People from Gaia, from Bepi. But... Yeah, they just haven't got that 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 adventure aspect, that story, that going somewhere they and goes all of that. They haven't oh, got that you. is nothing to do with me. Oh, I, this on. is it. I am a tiny piece in this machine. Yeah. Rosetta had a really good story, and I I'm lucky enough that I get to tell it even no, dressed right. like it, this. It's a great team. Yeah, it but, is a great team. I mean, is there a you know? There's so much science, obviously. And we've talked to you about a lot of the, the science. Has it? Can you say it's raised more questions than it's answered? Because it hasn't had those easy answers that maybe you were hoping for. You look at that back at that ambition film, all that talk about water, and we're yeah, going to answer questions about water on Earth. Yeah, yeah. Well, this, though, there, were, there were some high-level questions, and that's what you allude to at the beginning, and or we did. So when we had the first results, we're like, oh, we've shown this and we've shown that. It looks like this. That's what might be... Or the activity is driven here. Now we're starting to dig in further. Some of the data that, or some of the analysis that first came out We've redone, we've compared with other instruments, and you have to refine what your understanding is. Certainly some of the molecules that we detected, we said, well, is it likely that that's there? Because it's very difficult to get some of these signatures out. And to, you, you, you make models, you make assumptions, and when you've got more data, you can refine that. And that's what's happening now. In particular, combinations of data, looking at different instruments to address the questions. Now, yeah, your first question, is it, have we got more questions? Yes, basically. Or it's more, the first question has to be set with subset questions and we really are re-addressing it. Activity, what drives activity? It's still a big question. What is it that causes all this stuff to flow off? It's not simply, oh, was some ice, it's sublimating. Because that doesn't work. We've seen things change on the surface of the comet that you can't explain by just ice melting effectively. Something else has to be going, going on. And then these outbursts, how, how are they driven? The fact, as, again, one of the things that we're discussing is we saw as we came in, the comet was pretty red, dusty. It lost the dust cover, became more icy from a, from a global perspective. Then when it moved away from the sun, it became dusty again. But the comparison between the inbound and outbound, it's redder on the way out. So the suggestion is there's an annual evolution in dust coverage as well, that you might actually find activity continuing. Something has to be going on. for the. Re- it's not just around perihelion. Other stuff's going on, changing the ices around, doing su- stuff with the surface and the subsurface for it to then come round again and behave like it has. And, yeah, so, yeah, there's more questions. Thank you very much. So you look so uncomfortable today. Oh, yeah, yeah. really I think we'll, we'll let you have a shower. Well, I'm not, I'm good, no, I'm back on back on station now. Oh, I'll be brilliant. trooping again. Yeah, oh, and I think I just need to go and get a bite to eat and, uh, <laughs> and see where my blaster's gone. <laughs>
Matt Taylor, Rosetta project scientist and part-time stormtrooper on patrol here at Eztec in the Netherlands. This is the Space Boffins podcast and we're in partnership with the Naked Scientists. And in a moment we'll be hearing from British-born NASA astronaut Michael Fole. Hello, Georgia here with a quick interruption to ask for your help. At The Naked Scientist, we're always trying to make the best possible programmes. And one way we try to improve is by asking you to tell us what you think. The things we're doing well, the things we're doing not so well, and things you think we should be doing but we aren't. We've got a very simple online survey that just takes a few minutes to complete. It's open for the next few weeks and to sweeten the deal, if you fill it in for us, you could win some Amazon vouchers. The survey is open now at www.thenakedscientist.com slash survey. It just takes five minutes and is really appreciated. We read every word. Thank you so much. Now back to the show. You can see pictures of our day at Tech and our guests on our Facebook, Twitter, and if we can remember the login, our Instagram feeds. And uh, just a quick mention to the Corvallis Appreciation uh, Society. Uh, I just want to say hello to Erin in Corvallis, and thanks very much for your lovely comments on email. Excuse me, we're from um, Space Boffins Podcast. We're just asking people where they've come from and if they've enjoyed the day. Okay, well, we just arrived. <laughs> Are you local? Do you live in Holland? Uh, yes, I live in Utrecht, but I'm actually from Germany. So uh, have you ever been to one of these before? No, actually, this is the first time, but she really wanted to go because she's uh, working at NICAP, so she's What's kind that? of in the field. Oh, uh, yeah, I'm a physicist. I work in uh, gravitational wave science. Oh, just won the Nobel Prize? <laughs> kind of, yes. <laughs> not you personally, obviously. No, unfortunately, not yet. <laughs> so for you, what does this give you the opportunity to do and see? Well, for me, it's the first time to see uh, so a lot of important developments and technology happen here at Aztec, uh, satellite testing, and I find that really exciting because I'm also in instrument science. It's really uh, exciting to see these uh, cutting-edge technologies, how they develop and test it here. I like that a lot. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. <laughs> well, we uh, came and we saw André Kuipers, and uh, now we are collecting posters, <laughs> and we are enjoying ourselves, yes. Yeah. Now, from your accent, you sound like you're from the Netherlands, yes. and the fact that you saw André Kuipers, he's a well-known Dutch astronaut. Yeah. yeah. Was that the big attraction for you today? Uh, no, just in general, just to uh, see and uh, visit the building and the site and everything. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Now, I wasn't even aware that André Kuipers was here. So. <laughs> oh, that's good. And have you enjoyed it? Has it been good? Yes. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's good fun. Thank you very much indeed. My name's Caroline Garrity, and I'm actually from um, Northern Ireland. We do STEM outreach work for it's an organisation called the Mars Generation, and we also do pieces for Astronomy Ireland magazine as well. Now, you brought your son with you, who's dressed in a rather fetching blue flight suit. And it's specifically Tim Peake's yes. flight suit. Why is that? Hayden is actually on the autistic spectrum. And he was completely non-verbal until Tim Peake's launch, which was the 15th of December 2015. And Hayden watched Tim Peake's launch on TV. From then, it broke a silence uh, he started speaking and his love of space has just developed and it's just taken him into a completely different world the use of space then has been a tremendous help for him for his development his learning his speech it's just captivated him his confidence his attention span 
is learning from not just the Tim Peak now, he's actually getting into learning about different missions, you know, Rosetta, the Cassini, all the different planets, and his big thing he's really into, because we're involved with the Mars generation, is he wants to be the first autistic astronaut to get to Mars. Excuse me, Hayden, I hear you'd like to become an astronaut, is that true? Yeah. How old are you now? Seven. So what is it about astronauts that you like? How many have you met? Met eight. Who was your favourite? All of them. We're now in a nice quiet room with astronaut Michael Fole, British-born NASA astronaut. Remind us how many times you've flown in space, because I put my notes over there and I've lost count. <laughs> I've flown in space uh, six times. Uh, very, 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 very lucky. Um, most astronauts are very jealous of me, which is why I probably won't get to fly in space again. And I've been in space more than a year. That's astonishing. And what's amazing for me is that I used to report on your missions for the BBC, and particularly when you were busy trying to stick your finger in holes of Mir, but not literally, but sort of basically try and repair space stations and, and, and what have you. Do you ever wake up in a cold sweat at night about those times? No, never a cold sweat, honestly, um... Uh, actually, the Mir flight, although it had many of the most dangerous events in my career uh, occur on it, including the collision and the loss of pressure in the module and then then the loss of control of the station and the loss of electrical power. Nonetheless, because we weren't really... Uh, I didn't feel our lives were threatened um, for much longer than 10 seconds or so when during the actual moment of the collision. After that, I always felt there was an opportunity to save ourselves. <clears throat> and uh, that knowledge basically always meant that... Um, I didn't need to panic, didn't need to be afraid. And so it became a, actually one of my best missions, I would say, because I had so many opportunities to invent solutions to problems that ordinarily uh, NASA managers don't expect you to try and solve. Do, do you think Mir was misrepresented by the media at the time? Because it became almost this, this media joke, didn't it? Flying larder, I think it was referred to quite a lot in the print press. I was not aware of the print media or any media actually during the, the events on Mir in 1997 when I was there for five, five months. I felt that uh, I knew that something bad had happened. <laughs> um, I was dealing with it. I only had 10 minutes of communications a day with American English-speaking uh, controllers. And most of my news was coming from the Russian control center, which was very operational and, and specific to solving our problems. Um, I was aware through radio hand calls that I was making around the world that, yes, there was a media buzz going on. And uh, only after landing did I really hear some of the stories that were recounted or took place in the Russian control center, we call it Tsup, in Moscow, or, and indeed also in the American Congress. And uh, there were a couple of times when I got letters from NASA saying, well, could you say this, please, and please say this, this, and this, and this, if you feel that way about it. Um, supporting the program to keep it going because we are now uh, testifying in Congress to, all <laughs> to to say why we should be doing this, and so I then became aware. Oh, this is serious. It's it's interesting as well that the difference between uh, contact with astronauts as when you first you know started going up into space and now when it feels as if you know every astronaut has their own Twitter account, um, it, it seems much more um, well less private in a way in terms of what an astronaut goes through now compared to just 20 years ago? 
Well, I certainly had to shift my um, my behavior and and expectations. On the Mir space station, as I said, there was 10 minutes a day. We didn't have downlink TV. And I was basically a very private and cut off from the world. In fact, I sometimes felt very isolated. Whereas on the International Space Station, my last flight, there's just two of us because it was right after the Columbia accident, I was being asked often to put on a TV just to watch myself. And it's like, <laughs> why? Um, and so then, you know, you become self-conscious and uh, you, you don't want to scratch, you know, as spontaneously as one would otherwise. You don't want to, you know, if you're sneezing or whatever. Or... So all those things I found a bit odd, because almost invasive. And uh, email, of course, was the new thing for me after Mir. And that took up so much time, just keeping in touch with family and friends, as well as work, that uh, it took away some of the fun of being in space where you have time to look out the window. Today, uh, doing Twitter accounts, uh, waiting for a slow internet connection, that has got to be very frustrating. You, I think, put quite a lot of effort during those Mir days and the Shuttle Mir program into... uh, integrating with the with the Russians and to, to make it a successful program. But you mentioned it was isolating. I mean, how much effort was there to try and pull the US program together and the Russian program together? There was no, you know, cosmic or, you know, big picture plan to pull us together when you were talking about the Russians and the Americans. But I certainly, as a crew member, feeling like I was a foreigner to the Russian station knew that the only way I was going to survive this emotionally and psychologically was to try and uh, join in with that crew. I knew they didn't speak English at all. I didn't know them well. I'd only trained a couple of days with them uh, before I flew. And as a result, I made a massive effort, um, which has been recounted elsewhere, to try and let them allow me to run the Russian communications with the Russian control center. My Russian wasn't great, but it was better than the other American partners I had. And as a result of that, it built up some trust, not so much which was already there with my crew members, but with the Russian control center flight controllers. And then, and it, luckily, I had started that attempt to run the what we called packet radio com, which was a way of getting emails up and down, a very, very crude way at 1,200 board. But... Luckily, I had been doing that when we had the events of the collision um, in 1997. And as I then suggested solutions to our problems, uh, the Russian ground controllers were uh, more receptive to them. And my crewmates, in particular, when we had no communications with the ground, were willing to go along with it. It, it seems as well that um, so that... Benefits, uh, yeah. So the whole point of you know, being pulled together, it does have big benefits because it means you can respond much better to emergencies. Tim Peek always, has always said that if learning Russian, he finds, is most, probably the most difficult part of his astronaut training. But it's obviously an investment that is rewarding, particularly now when the Americans are dependent on the Russians to get back from the space station. One of the most... Positive things, and I can think of some negative things about the cooperation with Russia. Uh, one of the most positive things, probably the most positive thing about it, is the redundancy in space transportation to the ISS. This huge investment by all these countries, up to you know fifty, hundred billion. I don't know who counts it, but um, it's an awful lot of money, an awful lot of work by all these uh, eighteen different countries. And when the space shuttle Columbia um, had its ac- accident. Um, 
and uh, eventually led to the grounding of the space shuttle. It left the, uh, the United States with only the Soyuz rocket um, to carry all astronauts and cosmonauts to the International Space Station. The Russians, in almost every other sphere of cooperation or competition with the United States, will take advantage of it and uh, put the United States in a bad position. They never did that with the Soyuz. They only cooperated. They only helped. Um, they made nothing difficult for the U.S. And uh, it's that cooperation, that strength in having the partnership um, that is really the value, I think, we find on the, wor- you know, on the surface of the Earth from a project like the International Space Station. Do you think that cooperation can continue, particularly when you have these new U.S. means of getting to the space station, the SpaceX or the, the, the Boeing capsule? Um, I think uh, the cooperation between nations is somewhat at risk because of the now independent and uh, redundant, in a good way, uh, space transportation systems that can take us to, to space. And in the case of the United States, very soon uh, the dependency of the U.S. on Russia will come to an end. And uh, that it will be manifested by the launch of um, uh, either the Boeing uh, CST-100 crew, commercial crew transportation vehicle or the SpaceX Dragon. And uh, then the, there are others behind that, uh, like the New Shepard and uh, made by Blue Origin, Jeff Bezos of Amazon, uh, that will follow along soon after, I think. However, I can say um, uh, the governments of the United States and Russia are aware of that threat to cooperation and cohesion. And uh, we, I'm a member of a commission called the International Space Station Advisory Committee, which meets twice a year with our Russian counterparts. And uh, there's a couple of astronauts on it, and I'm one of them. I'm the most junior person, actually. And uh, we meet with them, and we've discussed uh, uh, the possibility of not having enough cooperation. And so the solution, uh, and it's an artificial one, well, it's all, but uh, it's, it's kind of a contrived one, is to insist that always each Soyuz will carry an American and each American vehicle, whichever one of those commercial ones I mentioned, goes, will carry a Russian. And so there's an intent to keep our crews at least to some extent trained on the other uh, country's system. It doesn't mean that all crews will train on all the other vehicles, but that's the way we'll keep this going. And what about keeping the space station itself going? And there's a lot of talk at the moment of how it gets extended beyond 2024, which is the the date everyone's everyone's committed to. Uh, Personally, I am very concerned about the end of the International Space Station. Uh, The formal date is 2024. Um, Every engineer, every manager, every person who's worked on it, astronauts, cosmonauts, we all think that the space station is such an enormously difficult challenge, uh, an achievement on the part of humanity, that it should continue. However, uh, budget um, within each of those space agencies um, is limited, and it doesn't change much. Um, And and the the desire to go uh, back to the moon, uh, to go to Mars, you've heard about um, an asteroid redirect mission, which was recently, um, again, cancelled by Trump's administration. These, These various projects compete for that money. And so for them to actually be able to say we can keep supplying the International Space Station with crews and cargo 
um, food and, and supplies for repair, it's hard for them to claim they can do it. In fact, they cannot. And so there are, there are formal plans to deorbit the International Space Station in 2024. And the fuel is being launched year by year by Russia uh, to fill up the tanks of the service module and the um, uh, FGB to enable the space station to be deorbited in 2024 by a Russian progress vehicle. That is the current plan, and I think it's a, um, a bad plan. I think it's a massive waste of um, a fantastic resource. But I understand there is a very limited amount of money to keep it going. To keep it going at the level that it's at now, I think, is definitely not going to happen. But I believe, um, as we, and I've always been a fan of commercial space, as commercial space starts to find a market, and it hasn't got a good market yet, but as it starts to find a market and develop it, I'm hoping, and it's purely hope, um, that commercial space could come up with a business plan that allows parts of the International Space Station to be maintained in space without sinking it into the Pacific Ocean. Otherwise, it could see in a way, in the same way that um, politically and historically you see the rise and fall of different empires on Earth, that maybe this is time now for the rise of the Chinese or the Indian Space Agency, probably China more than anybody else. You you bring up a very good point, and uh, space is not the preserve of any one nation at all, and we've seen that in history, and certainly uh, China is is developing its space program very effectively. India's program is very interesting also. And Europe, you know, I think I think that we're here. We're in, here in Europe today, in in in, in the Netherlands, and uh, the question is, what does ESA think it should do with uh, the International Space Station? I'm not actually hearing any noise from when I say noise, comments from ESA as to what they think should be done. They know they have a limited budget too. They know they want to go where the Americans go, you know, to the moon or wherever, and so the tendency is to say, well, we'll just forget about what the end of the space station will be. They're more concerned with the moon, actually, aren't they? Moon Village from Jan Werner. Well, not just uh, ESA. I would say all now that uh, Trump has redirected um, uh, NASA, even the United States now is going back to the moon first, and Mars is somewhere down the road. And that means all the countries are uh, looking at the moon, India and China in particular. And uh, just recently in the last few days, um, NASA has signed an agreement. It's a low-level agreement, I would say, not at the government, government, well, not at the president-to-president level. An agreement with Russia to study uh, a lunar gateway is what they're calling it. I've always thought of it as a lunar safe haven. And it would be based on some kind of combination of Russian and American modules as a core, and then I guess uh, other countries would add on to it. And it would be a safe haven um, for vehicles independently, when I say countries, independently going down to the moon or not, going around the moon or not, but at least they can use this this waypoint, um, way station around the moon. Are you saying that you can't have all these things, you can't have an ISS or some sort of space station around the Earth and a space station around the moon and exploration of the moon all at the same time? The decisions have to be made about one or the other. Or can you have them all in some, in some way? I, you know, I've had hopes dashed a thousand times as to what I thought politics would do in space uh, you know, I thought I would have been on the moon by the time I was about 35 and probably on Mars by the time I was 45 and that's what I thought when I was finishing my PhD in Cambridge which was you know I wasn't a, a, I wasn't a fool but I was certainly naive about politics and uh, I think that uh, wisdom is not unfounded so I, the answer to your question is there is not enough money within the government budgets to do all those things you just said so how do you uh, maintain some kind of space station as you do the others 
and uh, you have to come up with some very in innovative ways of keeping it up in space. I personally believe um, I've actually created a, well, I've bought the domains for savethespacestation.com, and um, I'm going to, I'm still giving NASA a chance to uh, tell me how they're going to do it. <laughs> But I think we, we're going to have to do some kind of crowdfunding or something like that. You retired in 2013. How are you predominantly spending your time, obviously, a, 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 apart from being a cheerleader for the space station? Well, I, actually, uh, one of the things, you know, I started my uh, career as a, a scientist in Cambridge doing physics and then a PhD in physics. And I've always been interested in programming, machine learning. My daughter's at Cambridge doing a, a, a PhD in engineering now. I love aviation so much. So I've actually diverted away from space a little bit. And uh, my interests are in machine learning, applying artificial intelligence to making aircraft uh, sensors. It's, it's sort of like an Internet of Things, but it's kind of a an artificial intelligence approach to, um, to measuring when an aircraft could go out of control, warning the pilot, preventing it. It's kind of smart machines. And uh, I started off, though, in that direction, applying it to uh, Richard Branson's Spaceship Two rocket motors, with a colleague of mine testing them in the desert in Mojave and uh, to come up with ways of just spotting if the, ref if the engine's going to blow up. And I've applied that now beyond um, to, to other systems. That's fascinating. It's funny because Richard hasn't been to Mojave and I was at Spaceport America only a few weeks ago in New Mexico to obviously to be on the runway to see where Virgin Galactic are going to land. Do you think they're going to, uh, they're going to get there uh, within a couple of years? Oh, I think a couple of years, yes. I'm just hoping they do the powered flight this year, but I'm not sure that's going to happen. Would you, you go? Have you been invited? Are you going to go back into I'm space? I'm invited, but yeah, I, no, they just, I, I just, I'm out there you know, in my shorts and T-shirt, and I'm just running wires and checking cables. and I'm, I'm a, kind of a backup um, test firing manager in the blockhouse for their engine. They've basically moved on. They have a good engine now, I can say that, and um, they're about ready to... Uh, I think they're getting close to flying, flying our passengers. You know. That's very exciting. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. You're welcome. British-born NASA astronaut Michael Fole. Well, that was interesting. It was. I, I didn't expect him to be such a conservationist when it came to the space station. Yeah, so this whole date of 2024, uh, we're going to have to look up these URLs now, see if he's actually done anything with them. But, you know, crowdfunding... The idea, you know, crowdsourcing funding for the space station. I mean, there are quite a few private operators already on the, the space station, particularly nanoracks, but you need a lot of money to keep that in orbit and keep supplying it as well. But I can imagine, um, particularly in the States, there would be enough supporters um, of, let's face it, it has been dominated by Russia and, and America. I know there's the European Space Agency involved and the Japanese and the Canadian Space Agency, etc. But when you think of the space station, you think of that partnership between Russia and America. And it, quite rightly, sh should be seen as a source of technological pride and aspiration. And why should it end, you know? I think one of the problems is that the Americans have already moved on. Certainly the government's already moved on. When you've got a, a president with a limited attention span, it's all about the moon now. It's all about the money. And it, well, yes, it's but about it's all the about, money and commercial yeah, space. But it's all about, it's about the moon and Mars. That's the new narrative. So it's almost as if, well, we've done Space Station. Let's go on to the moon. Yeah, well, that's, uh, as I said, that's, that's the opportunity for the Chinese, I think, um, of other countries to, to get up there, because the Chinese are putting their own um, space station up fairly soon, aren't they? Yeah, so we're going to get a Chinese space station, the International Space Station, maybe coming out of orbit, 
and a gap again with America before maybe they go on to the moon. Not unless Michael gets his crowdfunding sorted out. No, yeah, it's great news. So save the space station.com. <laughs> this is Space Boffins Podcast. We're supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium. And next month, we have Apollo astronaut Al Warden, who is, I think he's my new favourite astronaut. Mm. I mean, I know, I, I know I'm quite, you know, I, I kind of fickle. fickle about my astronauts, but I, he's, he's very, very good. Well, I've got a bit of a girl crush on Claudie. Hanyere. I, I couldn't quite remember how to pronounce it. I know I pronounced it right the first one I introduced her, but a few minutes have gone by now and I can't remember. But uh, she was charming and lovely and, uh, yeah, oh, I like her. Sorry, Samantha, Christopher Retti. You're now number two, so I'm going to have to see you very soon so you can get back to number one. <laughs> anyway, that's it for this month. We'll be back next month from the European Space Agency here in the Netherlands. Thanks for listening.